0: Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at
1: mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com.
0: I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 232, A Curious Collector of Baker
1: Street. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became astronomer.
0: In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. A podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler. Holmes
2: the busybody. Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office.
0: The game's afoot as we discuss goings on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective.
2: As we go to press, sensational
0: developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burt Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hi and hello and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, you you seem the
1: curious type to me. Yes, I am the curious type, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm sitting here thumbing through your wallet, and I see that today you've got $31 in cash. That you is, need to do better. That is curious indeed.
0: Uh, uh, well, you know, it, it's funny because um, I, I think Sherlockians by their very nature are curious people, and when I run into incurious people – well, I'm curious because I, I've never, I, I've always wondered about things. I've always had questions. I've always been interested in things. And it reminds me of the great Dorothy Sayers, Dorothy Parker quote. I always get my Dorothys mixed up here in, in Sherlock land. Dorothy Parker said, uh, curiosity is the cure for boredom. And there is no cure. Oh, well, what? There is no cure for
1: curiosity. Curiosity. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. When I meet incurious people, I always ask them the same question. I ask them, what is it that makes you so dull? And usually, <laughs> usually the answer I get is, are you talking to me? So... <laughs> It's kind of a pointless conversation, but I persist. Well, speaking of pointless conversations,
0: that's why people <laughs> are here. And we should remind people that the show notes for this episode are available at ihoes.co slash ihoes232. If you type that in, all lowercase, that will take you directly to the show notes for this episode on com. If you happen to be on the site, poke around a little bit, look through the archives, find some things that... Uh, a, Appeal to you and make sure you subscribe via email there because you won't miss an update either when a new episode comes out or when we put out other written updates on the site. We really appreciate having everyone subscribe, and of course, we do look forward to having you as a part of that community. Well, speaking of being part of a community, we have with us today a guest who is, well, all over the place when it comes to Sherlockian activity, mostly in the arts. Chuck Kovacic has acquired a BFA in graphic design and a minor in painting from the Cleveland Institute of Art. And Chuck Art directed campaigns for a variety of print and media clients, and detailed urban revitalization programs for communities participating in the Main Street program that was sponsored by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. He relocated to Southern California and he focused his artistic skills there as a restoration expert, specializing in early merchandising ephemera and related antiques. His disparate interests contributed to his creation of 221B Baker Street, Los Angeles, that's a full-scale re- recreation of the sitting room of Sherlock Holmes. As a performer and MC, he's staged presentations for numerous Fortune 500 companies and hosted the California Art Club's revived lecture series. His paintings investigate a variety of subjects rendered in the plein air style of post-impressionist. Chuck is an honor court member of the Mid-Valley Art League and in 2017 was named to signature status in the California Art Club. In 2016, he was a recipient of the CAC's William and Julia brackett Went Award, and he's a frequent contributor to the CAC's annual gold medal show, as well as their Old Mill Gallery in San Marino. Chuck, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere.
2: Well, thank you so much, fellas, for uh, having me come by kind of a uh, January break here after all the fun and excitement of the holidays. Well, this you, this is a continuation of the holidays. It is. In it, a sense.
0: It, it, yeah. For Sherlockians, the holidays extend well into mid January. So this is perfect. And this is being released at the BSI weekend, uh, where we are not currently. Um, Chuck, you are a familiar face around Sherlockians, But why don't you just start off by letting us know how you first got in with Sherlock Holmes?
2: Well, that was kind of a, an interesting journey, unlike so many other uh, fellow officiados. I wasn't one of those people that watched all the films or obsessively read all the books um, in my performing days a lifetime ago, uh, I kind of fell in doing a lot of corporate programming. uh, Employee recognition programs, uh, product introduction, uh, that sort of thing. And I kind of fell in with a number of speaker bureaus. And one of the more popular events that I was getting a lot of bookings for were team building exercises. And I already had a background in advertising, I was an art director for a number of years. And, uh, I would put together these elaborate team building exercises that sometimes involved trains. We did them on cruise ships. They were a lot of fun, but they were also a lot of work coordinating all of it. And, uh, the bookers kept asking me to do Sherlock Holmes. So one of the things that the guests and the clients appreciated were measures of authenticity. Uh, so I had to be dressed appropriately. And this got to be rather obsessive uh, as it was imposed upon me. Um, get into these awkward situations where the guests would get so hyped trying to sort out the clues. Uh, I would be followed into the washroom and people would pick my pockets while I was engaged in other activities, uh, looking for clues and good heavens. If they happen to pull out my wallet that I hadn't cleaned out of ID, ah, he really isn't Sherlock Holmes. He's this other guy. Ah, this is modern currency in here. He can't be Sherlock Holmes. Look. So it got down to the part or to the point, I should say for the part that, uh, I started carrying authentic currency, authentic uh, identification papers. Uh, If I had a comb or a small pocket mirror, uh, it had to be of the period, preferably stamped London, because anything that uh, the guests could come up with to chip away at my identity, because they're all primed for false identity. And maybe this is really Moriarty somehow in disguise, taking advantage of us. um, I had to painstakingly put this all together. So as I started reading these things, when I came out to California, uh, I left Ohio and I didn't have any furniture or anything with me. And the only furnishings that were available, I had always dealt on the sideline in antiques. Uh, I'm a restoration, uh, expert for, oh, pre-prohibition advertising items, the signs, the, the trays, the paper items. And so I was around all this bric-a-brac and clutter. And there was a lot of furniture uh, back at one point uh, in the day. They call it brown furniture now, uh, the reference to antique furniture. And I always told my friends, don't buy new furniture, because in 10 years time, you'll have used furniture. Whereas if you buy an antique in 10 years, you'll still have an antique and one of the lines of furnishings that were readily available was something called Eastlake uh, Victorian Furniture. And this was popularized uh, by some designers, Charles Eastlake, of course, uh, English designers um, and arts and crafts in England. And as it came in and started influencing designs here, I gradually gradually collected all the bits and pieces uh, of a sitting room. And I kept thinking, you know, one day I'm going to put together a sitting room. And that began the whole process because I decided, of course, to do the sitting room with Sherlock Holmes. But that became very, very complicated because not only did I have to find period correct items, ideally, They had to be of English design because the English design and the American designs, well, the American designs were primarily derivative of a lot of the English designs, but they were different enough. And uh, all the little items I had to put in. Firstly, it was a Sherlockian sitting room. Secondly, it was a Victorian gentleman's sitting room. So what would have Holmes... What were his items in the room? And I'm not just talking about canonical references, although those are important, but also what would have been in a gentleman's sitting room of the period. And those are the things that aren't discussed in the canon. Uh, I got quite obsessed with it to the extent that the desk that I have, when I opened the drawers, I wanted to know what kind of pencils did they have? Did they have erasers? Did they have staplers? Did they have paper clips? Yes to all these, but now I had to find the English variants. And it just was a rabbit hole of going down and finding these items. But the importance of it, uh, has been that when I walk into that room, I can begin to parse out why things were placed where they were. And a lot of this information has never been written down or discussed. Doyle certainly didn't discuss it. Why would he? He was writing for a contemporary audience. You can well imagine, 50 years from now, if somebody's reading a paragraph that says, uh, I walked into the open space where the uh, telescreen was on the wall, but I couldn't find the proper remote sequence to turn on the streaming service. Now, nobody's going to stop and explain what all that is. And 50 years from now, uh, if not considerably sooner, it's all going to be lost. So uh, all these little bits and pieces of information are just gone and uh, it's been an interesting investigation, uh, finding those bits and pieces. So to, when you know to substantiate things canonically.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a, a really impressive journey. When when did you first start putting all of this together before it took the current form?
2: Uh, that started back when I started doing the corporate work as Holmes. Uh, I would say mid-80s, and I had the first room incarnation uh, in the townhouse that I owned at the time, appropriately. Uh, that was back in 95, and then when I moved into my present home uh, here in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, uh, that was about uh, 97, 98, uh, I had an entire room, an entire bedroom, to put this in. And uh, so there's been the two incarnations and things it's a lot like uh, decorating that Christmas tree. Can you put too much tinsel on? Are there too many ornaments? Uh, how obsessive do you want to get? And it's just layers and layers and layers of information that uh, uh It's been very, very interesting uh, because it's given me so much insight to the stories. I'll give you an example. There is kind of a standard scenario, canonically, where a, a frightened, aggrieved, single young lady comes in to the sitting room. And she opens the door. She's unescorted. So it's already a fraught situation. Ladies did not go out unescorted. And now she's here at a single gentleman's apartment. See, you didn't enter this space. So that's an indication something really horrible is going on for this, this woman. Uh, what's about to unfold? And of course, by our modern standards, we think nothing of her walking into the room. But in the 1880s, she now gets inside that threshold and she freezes. She's confronted by Holmes, who is probably dressed simply in a waistcoat. Uh, there's perspiration on his shirt. Uh, this is something that a woman wasn't allowed to see. Uh, why doesn't he have his jacket on? Horrors, he's in a dressing gown and she's looking nervously around as to where to sit where to sit. Um, and that's a fraught situation. Uh, you may have wondered in looking at Victorian sitting rooms or Victorian rooms in general, why they had so many chairs. Why? Well, the simple reason was this. When a lady would enter a room, the gentleman would rise and offer her a fresh chair one that didn't retain his body heat. And now she's looking nervously around for a chair that doesn't have books and papers and clutter on it. And Mimi Holmes rises from the settee and offers the settee where he's been sitting and she has to deal with his body heat and the perspiration on his shirt. And now she's trying to negotiate the clutter of the room in her bustled gown without knocking anything over and uh, I'm friends with many reenactors and uh, I'm with a group that I uh, attend as an artist that recreates impressionist picnics. So I've had some of the ladies over and my wife is a very serious costumer. She works for a uh, Hollywood uh, costume company for television and film work and I would invite these ladies into the room and they freeze because they don't want to knock anything over. How do I walk into this room? How do I move around? Um, So there is this dynamic of tension that once you realize this, you have to go back and read some of these stories uh, of this, this scenario that must have riveted uh, readers in the day going, oh my God, this is horrible. This is horrific on all these different levels. And then, uh, because Holmes disdained so much of uh, societal norms and their constraints, none of the furniture matched. This was a horrible no-no. Uh, you showed your societal uh, an economic position by getting the matched set, the settee, the armchair, uh, for the gentleman, the ladies chair, the matching side chairs, the matching table. And the more you assembled, why the more of your societal position? And there was none of that here. So, uh, you start wondering the context the dialogue that's going uh in the mind of the people who are coming in for a consultation of oh my god what have I just stepped into who, who is this guy yeah he has a reputation for uh unraveling these cases but my gosh what have I just stepped into <laughs> and um I think that's often overlooked when the room is recreated in television and film. Uh, I think they got it right with the Cumberbatch series. Uh, very much so there was a lot of clutter in there that anybody entering it now would feel awkward that it was kind of unkempt and things laying around. Um, on the other hand, that room reminds me of the rooms of a lot of Sherlockians I know and oh. fellow collectors. So maybe it's not as frightening.
1: But yeah. uh, Well, it's-, it's wonderful. Of all the people, Chuck, that we've spoken to about their first meeting with Sherlock Holmes, about how they first met Sherlock Holmes. You're the only one that we've spoken to who first met Sherlock Holmes because he was cast as, <laughs> as Sherlock Holmes. And interestingly enough you're also you know we have talked to folks who've uh, created their own sitting rooms, but you have a lot in common with Bert Cools, you know we spoke to Bert Cools about the radio dramatizations of Sherlock Holmes, yes, and among other things, he talked about the Hound of the basketballs, how the moor becomes a character yes you've you've created a character around the sitting room, you know, you've you, there's a real personality and a dimension there. I'm curious, over the years, as you put this together, is there any one object or one or two objects that was really elusive to you? Is there anything that you're still looking for that you would love to have in the sitting room that you don't have?
2: Well, there were many elusive things. Um, as I mentioned, it wasn't enough to get items that were Victorian. Uh, They also had to be in reasonably good condition. Uh, They couldn't look a 100 years old. They had to look as if they were reasonably new. So I've had to very carefully refurbish a lot of the furnishings uh, as such. And finding some of the items that were of English uh, manufacture... Um, took quite a bit of work. Um, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, everybody loves dark lanterns, yet the dark lanterns that I see that everybody has um, are from Dietz & Company, which is still in business. They're a New Jersey firm. But by the 1880s, they had dominated the world market and had flooded these wonderful dark lanterns um, all across the world. Um, so finding a, an English variant, a London manufacturer, um, was very, very difficult. And I contacted a gentleman who was refurbishing an old hardware store, and he knocked down a false wall, and behind the wall was new old stock of dark lanterns that had simply never been used. They had never been sold. It was probably uh, walled up in the teens or the 20s when the electric torch had come into vogue, uh, the flashlight. Um, There was no reason to keep them or to put them in the inventory. And there they were. And I was able to acquire one. At the original price? (laughs) At the original (laughs) price. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Ah, no. <laughs> but I was able to take the original uh, London design and put it next to the American design. And it was immediately clear that the American design was like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. It was functional. It was cheap. The English design was of heavier construction, more substantial. Uh, you could see that it had considerable merits. So that took a long time. To find probably the most elusive item, uh, because of its connection to uh, Myrigan and the Rockenbach Fall. <laughs> Falls, it was an alpine stock. And I had been to Myrigan uh, twice uh, for conferences there uh, that were put on by the Kinkaiers, the uh, Parisian group, um, back in the day. And I looked all over and, um, I had been to Paris a number of times and I always frequented the, the Brocants and the, uh, uh, the Marsh Pousse, the great flea markets. I could not find, I it was in Germany. Uh, I was looking all uh, Italy. I was looking all over for an authentic period Alpine stock. Couldn't find it. Lo and behold at an antique mall. In Ohio, I found an alpine stock, and it was embossed, lettered, Innsbruck. Yeah. And it's like I had to go all the way to Ohio to find an authentic alpine stock. It was crazy. And there was a conversation that I had some time ago with – Les Klinger, and he said the single most valuable Sherlockian item that he owned of importance was a Victorian period encyclopedia, because here you have all the terminology. Uh, it hasn't been lost. It's like the Dead Sea Scrolls of Victoriana. And it took me years. And I finally found uh, a 10-volume bound set in beautiful condition, printed in Edinburgh in 1903 for a London publisher. And I found it at the same antique mall in Ohio a couple years later. And I had looked all over Europe for... An encyclopedias. It had to be of the period, and it had to be an English publisher. And it's fascinating notes and insight to things that, again, as you read the stories, I mean, you could almost do an annotated Sherlock Holmes just on what it meant when it said "walked through the door." What kind of door? Did it have a transom? What were the hinges like? Uh, What was the handle like? Um, Did it squeak? Did it didn't squeak? Uh, What was the flooring? What were the flooring covers like? What were the prominent, uh, predominant colors? And on
1: and it's... uh. Is there anything you're still looking for that you you don't have?
2: Well, I'm sure there would be people that would walk into the room. And indeed, when I have a first-time Sherlockian visitor... I offer them that challenge. And usually what they do is they go through the room and they're looking for specific um canonical items. Uh Dennis Dobry in his fabulous room, we've talked quite a bit about this and uh fabricating those things like uh I have a fabricated cardboard box, you know, for the cardboard box, but then it becomes an issue of what kind of postage went on that box. What was the correct postage? What was the postage at that period? I, I, I mean, these are the levels that you go to. It was wrapped in twine. What kind of twine? Was it a colored twine? It was brown paper. What kind of brown paper? Was it waxed on one side? How was it marked? Was it a nibbed pin? Was it pencil? Was it a wax crayon? How was it lettered? How was it marked? And uh, things like that have been illuminating because everybody has their own favorite story. And they want to look for those items. Um, something that I had been looking for for some time, and eBay has been a great font of of uh, items. I looked all over for a small safe, a small floor safe. And by small, I mean it's the interiors, maybe uh, 9 by 12. And, of course, over here, you can only find uh, those of American design. But come on, kids, a safe is a safe is a safe. And I hand-lettered an embellishment of an SH on the front of the safe. But over the years, it bothered me because I knew Holmes didn't have these talents and abilities. Why would he put an SH on his own safe? He knew it was his safe. What was he Ah. (laughs) Well, I found out that there is a subset of collectors in England that uh, collect English safe brasses, and these are brasses that are maybe three to four inches in diameter, and they're reliefs of the manufacturer for the different safe companies in England. So I've been, I, I said, oh, now this makes sense. So I've been obsessing for, for months, just revisiting uh, the internets, trying to find some sort of connection to a specific safe to get the closest manufacturer to that town that it links with the story because I well know that somebody is going to walk into the room at some point and go, Ah, you know, why did you get a safe from Birmingham when you should have been looking for one from Sussex?
1: Ah, ah,
0: ah, the frustrations that come with being a curious collector. Of Baker Street. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here for a commercial segment. Stay with us and come back in just a moment as we continue our conversation with Chuck Kvasik. MX Publishing recently launched the MX Audio Collection, an app with a series of interviews and other audio content, beginning with Lee Child talking about Reacher and Sherlock. There are many more interviews lined up for 2022, including Jeffrey Hatcher, screenwriter for Mr. Holmes, Otto Penzler, the founder of the Mysterious Bookshop and Mysterious Press, authors like Bonnie McBird and Nicholas Meyer, and yours truly, Scott Monty and Bert Walder from I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Every month, MX will be adding in at least four new Sherlock Holmes stories and some more theater performances. There'll be more from the Deductionist Ben Cardale too. You can read more about the app and sign up for the MX Audio Collection at ihose.co/mxaudio. That's all lowercase. ihose.co/mxaudio. There's a monthly subscription option and an annual subscription option with a significant discount. And ihose listeners get an additional twenty-five percent off of any subscription you choose. Just by using the code IHOS when checking out. A percentage of the proceeds of the app go to Undershaw, the School for Children with Learning Disabilities. It was the former home of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who of course wrote many of the Sherlock Holmes stories while he lived there. So go to iHose.co/slash MXAudio and use the code IHOSE Today for the MX Audio Collection. All right, we are back talking with Chuck Kavasek about, well, all of his OCD tendencies, really. That's right. Um, (laughs) Specifically around outfitting 221B Baker Street or a gentleman's sitting room, as it would appear in the Victorian English Times. But, Chuck, your interests, uh, both professionally and in the world of Sherlock Holmes, go beyond... Collecting physical objects and and doing setups like this, you you have a a penchant for art. You mentioned earlier that you uh, had been an art director uh, at one point, but you've really kind of taken that in a very strong direction with some of the work that you do. You want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, I had always done art as you know, growing up as a kid, doodling and uh, interest in all manners things, art. And, uh, it was my standard first date with uh, ladies to take them to an art museum because I could uncover very quickly, uh, what types of things they reacted to and whether or not they had any level of knowledge about the things that we were looking at. So I recommend that heartily. Um, but, uh, I went to art school, the Cleveland Institute of Art, and I majored in graphic design with a minor in photography and painting. Yet when I graduated, I didn't paint. Um, I didn't really paint again. I got involved doing portrait miniatures, Elizabethan portrait miniatures, because when I met my uh, wife, uh, she was portraying Queen Elizabeth at the Renaissance fairs out here. So I ended up doing Elizabethan portrait miniatures which is a whole other obsession and um, that was the only art that I was doing and I had always promised myself that at some point I would start painting again and I reached the double nickel age-wise 55 and I said well what exactly are you going to do this if ever that's when I started painting seriously again and I Pursue plain air figurative art, which for those of you that don't know what that is, plain air is a French term for open air. I paint in the manner and the style of the French Impressionists and Post Impressionists. And um, that's a period I like, uh, generally from about 1840 to about 1920. And I started working with groups. Um I'm a advisor to the board of the California Art Club which is one of the oldest clubs in the country founded in 1906 and I do a lot of programming for them putting together events uh, the biggest one we had last year was I organized the world's first virtual paint out of another planet um I started engaging the people at JPL uh, at the time of the landing of Perseverance and uh, one of their head designer technicians curated some images for us, which we then live streamed to our artists. And as they were being downstreamed and curated, we painted them in real time. So it was literally a virtual paint out of another planet. So doing all these interesting things uh, with the painting and um, the portraiture that I was doing uh, stylistically, uh, which many Sherlockians will be aware of, was John Singer Sargent and Joaquin Sorelia and Anders Zorn, um, there were many, many society painters um, back in the day. I have always found it curious that there weren't more artistic references um, to some of these folks um in the canon. Interestingly enough, uh, Bonnie McBeard and uh, her works, I think it was her second novel, a, a lot of it takes place uh, at the Louvre, and she's mentioning specific galleries, specific paintings, and there's a, a wonderful book by David McCollum, uh, Americans in Paris, and it details artists going there to study. So certainly there's a lot of information for uh, a mystery uh, that takes place around artists. I can only um, speculate that maybe Doyle just didn't have any interest in the visual arts. Uh, you know, no need to. He was a writer. But I find it curious that there's this curious omission.
1: Um well, he so, um he he did you know his book um his his journal from his his trip on the whaler you know at one point in his career he interrupted his medical studies and became a ship surgeon yes, on a whaling yes. boat and that's illustrated you know with a lot of his drawings uh, and that's something he picked up from his father of course who was uh, yeah an artist you know, but I, I don't think he and he also was interested in photography but I don't mm-hmm. think Doyle Doyle was not an amateur painter I don't think by any
2: means. Well, it was also a different time. And I think, you know, this conversation brings up a particular insight. Uh, The fact that you reminded me that he did, that was part of keeping a journal then, that you did sketch and you did little watercolors and people just didn't think anything of it. It wasn't thought of as a particular talent that was unique or anything that needed developing. You kept a journal. That's what you did. And it's something, sadly, that's become lost um, because we've replaced that uh, visual conversation with so many other things that we don't feel the need for it. So um, thank you for uh, pointing that out. And I think that is the explanation, um, at least for me. Um, but anyway, um did I digress? Yeah, well, yeah. we
0: all digress on this show. That's <laughs> part of the point. Um You were talking a little bit about portraiture, and there are a number of portraits, I think, that our Sherlockian listening audience would be interested in, particularly those folks who uh, are in or just returning from New York City because you've got a few connections there with the BSI hmm. Weekend. You want to mention, uh, I know of at least two.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, you know... Uh, being an artist and uh, going to the events, and I started going, oh, heavens, back in about 95 or so, and I went every year for uh, about 10 years, and I found it interesting uh, that there wasn't more of a discussion of art. There was certainly a discussion of arts. You had the wonderful, uh, groups, the Sherlockian players that were doing, uh, the little oleo bits that you know, were, were always fun. And you'd have people that would do these elaborate toasts that were always fun. You know, the, the performance level of it, the, the reading of the poetry, the, the writing it was always fun. Uh and occasionally you'd see these wonderful caricatures and things that people had done. And of course uh, Jerry Margolin with his wonderful uh, collection of things um, I had been doing the merchant's room. So I would try to bring artistic uh, items in uh, that uh, illustrated some of the things we were talking about. And I realized that at the Gillette luncheon, there wasn't a portrait of Gillette. You know, we raised a toast, but we should raise a toast to a portrait of William Gillette. So I contacted the ladies uh, that put that together and they were very excited. And I did the portrait. And about 10 years later, uh, I brought in a second portrait with the idea that they could auction off the first one, which they did. But also because I had been painting for 10 years, I fancied that I was a bit of a better painter than I was the first time out. But the second portrait uh, of importance that has an interesting story uh, was the one that I did of Christopher Morley. And as I started looking around, I didn't find all that many images of him. There were a few caricatures, a few photographs. I tried speculating, you know, there are some people that don't want their picture taken, that don't, they just don't like it. Um, I I couldn't quite understand this. Uh, He was an interesting looking fellow, certainly one worthy of painting. And at the same time I did the Gillette portrait, uh, I did one of Morley based on a compilation of some images that I found of him. And there was this one of him wearing his heavy glasses, and he had this slight smirk, and I, I thought, oh, this is just the thing. And uh, I did the portrait. I had it digitally scanned, uh, framed, and I had a little brass plaque put on it. Um, it said Christopher Morley from his fellow Sherlockians. Uh, I very much didn't want my name on it. Uh, my name is the signature, and I have a bio on the back of the piece. But I wanted any Sherlockian to go in there and, to a certain extent, be able to lay claim to it, that it wasn't Chuck's, it was everybody's. And I brought that in and uh, to McSorley's, and I didn't know what kind of reception I was going to get. Uh, I was I was going to gift it to McSorley's and the bartender came over. And, of course, you know, the waiters there, uh, <laughs> they're worthy of a painting themselves. And artists have painted McSorley's over the years. There's a wonderful series of paintings, uh, one of which is out here at the Huntington. Anyway, um, I pulled the portrait out of the bag and the waiter audibly had to catch his breath. What are you doing with McSorley in the bag? And he was serious. And I said, I've brought it in as a gift to grace your walls. Really? Yes, really. What do you want for it? Nothing. Just the pleasure of gifting it uh, to the establishment. Give it to me. (laughs) And he took it, came back about 15 minutes later. All right. I gave it to the owner. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'm I'm thrilled about that. He's going to put it up on the wall.
1: Yeah. Oh. And, don't, and don't do it again.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, it gets better, my friend. He says uh, he's going to put it up on the wall. And there it hangs on the one wall. And the, a couple of days later, when I revisited, there it was hanging on the wall. And I said, well, that's wonderful. And he looked at me and he says, hey, you don't understand wonderful. In the past 50 years, nothing new has been placed on the walls in this bar. That's the first thing that's been placed on the wall in over 50 years. That is wonderful. And I went, yes, can I have two more beers, please? <laughs> so, I mean, I here I was doubly flattered that they loved it enough to hang it on the wall. But here I am. I mean, my gosh, if I had tried to do this presentation in a straight line, where I spent weeks and months trying to contact the owner, trying to contact the management, trying to tell them what I wanted to do that I was bringing this thing. And endless, here's what it's going to look like. This is the size. This is what it's about. It's a gift. No, it's really a gift. No, I don't need any pay. Well, if you want to give me a beer and a bowl of chili. All right. No, 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 it's yours. It, the endless explanation, because I've I've been there before, brother. Just the simple, immediate, improvisational quality of that moment, you could not try to create. It just happened. And it is such a thrill whenever I go in there to see that on the wall. And of course, Jim Cox with uh, his wonderful uh, Morley Walk, when he comes in, always comes in and sees to it that a toast is raised. Uh, to the portrait. So it's a very, very uh, flattering situation. And um, I must say, I have exhibited in museums. Um, uh, I do occasionally have a museum that threatens to acquire one of my paintings. That's fine until they actually deliver on it. But I consider this the greater honor, because it's so obscure, so esoteric, you know, to have a painting on
1: their wall.
0: And and to see it there, I mean, it looks like it's been there forever, right? It looks like it's there from Morley's time. That, uh, exactly so. You know, uh, it, it it just, in everything we've talked with you about uh, today, Chuck, It it's part of that that pursuit of authenticity, of, you know, period perfection that you're after?
2: You know, uh, speaking of art and painting, I'm sure you fellows and uh, the listeners are aware that there's a wonderful Facebook page. I'm going to get the name wrong. Uh, The gist of it is Sherlockian illustrations and art. And uh, a lot of... uh, graphic designers and artists and uh, uh, painter illustrators have been posting things there. And it's been kind of fun to come across that and see that. And occasionally um, the stranger's room will post these wonderful pen and ink illustrations. I forgive me, I can't recall the artist's name, a very talented fellow that's done a lot of things for the uh, the dinner programs and such. And I keep thinking, and I'll, I'll toss this idea out to anybody who's interesting, that uh, for one of the future conferences or gatherings, there should be a Sherlockian art show of uh, artists who are serious, but also uh, people who passingly doodle. People would say I passingly doodle. And to... Offer a challenge to have, you know, someone like yourself or uh, somebody else to say, okay, we're going to illustrate that moment when Raqqa is discovered. Or we're going to illustrate that moment when the carpet is pulled up to reveal that stain. Illustrate that moment and um, have it uh, open to non-Sherlockians to generate interest because there's a lot of people that like uh, illustrating Different scenes. And um, I think it might be a curious uh, entry point for Sherlockians and non Sherlockians um, to engage the stories um, on a different level. Um, It might be worth pursuing at some point.
0: That's a great suggestion. Uh, I like that a lot. Uh, And it comes from, you know, so many different. Angles. I mean, we, we have so many different uh, illustrators, so many different uh, interests in collecting Sherlockian art from different perspectives. Um, and I think that Facebook page that you're talking about, if I'm not mistaken, is the Art of Sherlock Holmes. Is that right? Yeah,
2: there you go. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. We'll
0: have a link to that in the show notes yeah. so people can get to it quite easily. I know
2: that uh, uh, Bonnie Beard, uh, she... Uh, does some watercolors. And, uh, when she comes to her home here in the Los Angeles area, she does these watercolor renderings. She has a a couple of fellows that she uses for Holmes and Watson as as models. And, um, I, I think she's used some of those illustrations in her stories. I wish there was more of that. I, I wish, you know, all the books that, uh, have come out, all the past issues and everything. I, I wish there were, there was kind of like a revival. But I, I find in talking with a lot of the writers of these things, particularly when I meet them in the merchant's room, they're so intimidated just in producing the book, just writing the text, that it's seemingly, at the moment that they could take it past the goal line, they're just Exhausted with the whole process, and trying to figure out how to find an illustrator, how to work with an illustrator, how to get that in there, how to find a publisher that's even going to agree to put illustrations in the book. Are they black and white? Are they color? Who's going to pay for that extra expense? Are you going to get a dust jacket? What's the dust jacket going to look like? Is there an illustration on that? Or are you going to all those things seem to be dropped and. I can understand because the people that are producing them are producing them from the viewpoint of a writer. And that, of course, uh, is what makes it so. But from a collaborative standpoint, uh, to do something where things are illustrated, uh, I love that series of illustrations that uh, uh, the British, uh, you know, the wonderful series of stamps that they did a couple of years ago, Illustrating the stories, I mean, wow, Uh, to do it in a uh, more contemporary setting. Or occasionally I'll see somebody that's trying to recreate the pageant illustrations, which are not easy. Uh, Those pen and ink wash drawings, um, uh, they can be mastered. But I note that pageant, that was the focus of his work. Uh he knew his genre, he knew his niche, he knew his audience, and he stuck with it and mastered it. Uh I, I wonder, he probably didn't feel he had time for much of anything else. He was doing so well with that.
0: Um Yeah, and when you but, think about uh you know when when we move into the forties and fifties, uh and Frederick Steele had a commission, I think with the either the Limited Editions Club mm-hmm. or Heritage Press. Uh, doing those, you know, that wasn't necessary, but it was a wonderful, uh, you know, kind of cherry on top for those who had yes. grown up with the stories, for those who had experienced them firsthand in Collier's magazine.
2: Yes, yes. Uh Just wonderful, wonderful uh things. Of course, you know, to, to be honest, this was a golden age of illustration that's been lost because so much of print has been lost. But when these wonderful volumes of uh, Sherlockian related uh, things are put together, uh, you know, that extra bit of care uh, to make them even more special, um, I think would be an exciting endeavor. I'm going to digress for just a second. One of my favorite paintings that people typically don't know, you can look it up on the Internet's. Samuel Morris before he was inventing the telegraph was an artist and guess what he painted he painted a series of paintings of the Reichenbach falls so um if you were ever of the mind uh those images do pop up from time to i have a book of his works and i'm like what the Reichenbach falls so, uh, occasionally these images do uh, pop up by artists who had no inkling or awareness or interest in Sherlockian activities simply because the sites are
0: that's, so compelling. That's fascinating. That's, and, and 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 Hopper painted uh, a few portraits or a few a few uh, images with uh, telegraph lines in them that probably would have appealed to Morris oh, as well. Oh, wow.
2: well, yes, there's definitely a connection I mean, although it comes and goes.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh Chuck, if people want to find more out about you and the wonderful artwork that you do, where should we send them?
2: Uh, well, of course, uh, being here in Los Angeles, I always tell people the room is open, 221B Baker Street, Los Angeles. It is open by appointment only. Uh, I know some people are sometimes hesitant to call because they think, oh, it's an imposition. I don't want to go in to see somebody's collection. I don't want to go into their home. Uh, I can assure you we have plenty of clean glasses and ice at the ready for your visit. Um, and certainly you are more than welcome. There is my Facebook page, which is Chuck Kvasik, Um, and you are welcome to friend me. Uh, that is where I post, oh, about once a week or so, I post a video clip of one of my paintings or some of my newer uh, works, or some of the painting programs I'm doing. Uh, I post the Sherlockian things on uh, Baker Street, Los Angeles, 221B, Baker Street, Los Angeles, or BSLA. Uh, you can go to that Facebook page. Um, I recently did two videos um, of a Sherlockian nature, uh, a Sherlockian Christmas Video and a uh, Sherlockian Hallow's Eve uh, video that I posted there. And uh, I have a third page, uh, Friends of Chuck Kavasik, which is kind of a melding of the two. I do so many different things that I have found it necessary to have these multiple uh, pages that appeal to different separate groups. And um, certainly folks are more than welcome to come and do a virtual tour for a while. uh, It's down. I have to replace it. I had a group come in and do a digital scan of the entire room so that you could take a virtual tour. You didn't have to put on the goggles or anything, but you could walk into the room and spin around in the room and then walk up to the different items. And then if you clicked on the item, uh, a text would come up explaining uh, what the item meant canonically or how rare it was to find an example of it. And uh, sadly, the uh, person who was hosting that uh, is no longer with us, so I have to have the room scanned again. And uh, hopefully I'll attend to that uh, at some point this year. Excellent.
0: well, that'll give our listeners something to, uh, to go back to and to, uh, so. to enjoy this all over again. Well, Chuck Kavasek, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful stories uh, and, and your, your fascinating perspective on getting things just so in the Sherlockian universe.
2: Well, I, I appreciate the call and it's, it's definitely information that, uh, has been over looked, I think. Um, And uh, someday I've been tinkering for years now, threatening to do a revised inventory of 221B that lists not all the canonical items, not just those, but also the items that would have been found in a gentleman's sitting room. Because I think once you start putting them together, you get a whole level of energy and insight um, that you couldn't get one without the other. And, as an artist, it's probably the most elaborate sculpture that I have ever indulged in.
1: Fascinating to talk to Chuck. You know, and the one thing that really stood out in my mind from the conversation is scholarship. I don't know that in the past we've properly appreciated Mm. the scholarship that goes into building. I mean, in addition to his many artistic accomplishments and his other talents and his experience of actually being cast as Holmes and his deep dive into the stories, but the scholarship of assembling the sitting room is magnificent because, you know, and he was so eloquent in describing the work that he did to imagine the situations to put himself in the position of the characters what were they wearing how would that have how would that have affected their movements what would they have seen and felt in entering the world of sherlock holmes all of that you know is really intense scholarship um very sophisticated. And I can't believe I don't know that we've ever encountered that before. It makes me very, very eager to go, go to L.A. and to see that sitting room.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And wh- when you think about the number of scholars over the early days of the Baker Street Journal who had contributed to uh, the, the famed layout of 221B Baker Street, trying to discern where the Bow window was, where Sherlock Holmes's bedroom was in perspective to that, and trying to work out all of these things based on uh the clues that we get in the canon. I think this goes one step further because it's a three-dimensional version of that and it's taking into account, just as Chuck said, real life situations in a gentleman's sitting room in Victorian London. So, you put all that together, and it's actually a a very niche, uh, a very uh, obscure kind of scholarship, but one that is scholarship nonetheless.
1: One of the great Sherlockian periodicals is back, the 2021 Sherlock Holmes Review. Edited by Steve Doyle, art direction by Mark Gagan, with all new contributions from Nicholas Meyer, Robert Doherty, Frank Cho, and Margaret Lewis, Steve Hawkinsmith, Les Klinger, Jimmy Aiken, and more. 118 pages about Sherlock Holmes, the illustrators, community, collecting, comics, reviews, film and TV, scholarship, including new artwork. Irene Adler drawn by the inimitable Frank Cho. It looks like a book and reads like a magazine. It's the Sherlock Holmes Review. Get your first edition copy of this essential 2021 Sherlockian Annual, the all-new Sherlock Holmes Review, at wessexpress.com.
0: the familiar strings as they're back with us this time around for another edition of everyone's favorite canonical quiz show, The Canonical Couplet. This is where we give you two lines of poetry and you give us the name of the Sherlock Holmes story that we are referring to. In the last episode, you may, well, actually, it was two episodes ago. We made you wait one extra episode. Back in episode 230, we reminded you of this Sherlock Holmes story. A well-known Surrey family, widespread rumors of a death, Holmes by Watson's bedside while the client shivereth. Bert, do you know which Sherlock Holmes
1: story we're talking about this time? I do, I do, of course. That is one of the classic Sherlockian novels. That's the theft of the great Agra treasure. And the thieves... Who all drank beer from the same jug? That's the Stein of the Four.
0: Well, once again, Bert, you have delivered. <laughs> um, you have delivered. Not the correct answer, but nonetheless oh, you have delivered. Yeah. No, I know it's astounding. Um, well, as usual, I it was an
1: IPA too, you know.
0: <laughs> Did they have IPAs in India?
1: I don't think they had anything else. You know, it was all, uh, no, yeah, that's, that's exactly boat, it. That's right.
0: all that was there. They were just PA. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <my.
1: laughs>
0: right. Well, uh, our good friend Eric Deckers, uh, once again came to our rescue. He said, uh, I figured it out. It's the story of the noted Sherlockian author, Mr. Andriaco, who woke up one morning and discovered he had been transformed into the gingerest of redheads. It's, The Adventure of the Freckled Dan. Oh, sorry. Too much eggnog over the holidays, Eric writes. It's The Adventure of the Speckled Band, the creepiest of all Sherlock Holmes stories. Well, Eric, that is correct. We were looking for The Adventure of the Speckled Band. And we had a number of entries this time because we gave you a little extra time to do your thing. So we will once again bring out the big prize wheel and give it a spin, watching it go around and landing on number 22. Hey, how about that? Number 22 for 2022. I love that. Well, in this case, number 22 is Andrew Lamprecht. Andrew, congratulations on your canonical couplet win. Now, what did we say we were going to get? Oh yes, it was the Sherlock Holmes little book of wisdom. How perfect. Well, that will be in the mail to you soon, Andrew. And now we are ready for this episode's canonical couplet. Bert, are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. The schoolboy was a golden child, always in first place. A weary vigil Holmes endured, much like the stoner case. If you think you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose you at random, you'll win. Yeah, there we go. Well, we didn't tell people what they would win this time, Bert. What do you think we should uh, throw in for a prize?
1: Well, I've uh, put about two or three thousand miles on my new Bentley. I suppose I could trade that away and get another one. Was that your
0: 1954 Bentley?
1: Oh, the nineteen fifty four Continental R. Uh well actually, yeah, I think I'll hang on to that one. <laughs> <laughs> wise, wise indeed. Well,
0: we will pick a nice prize from our vault, something that is perhaps reflective of of Chuck's work. Uh, perhaps not. Well, we do have a number of items there. Also, we would encourage you, if you do like contests, to tune into our other podcast, our weekly show that's a little shorter than this. Actually, much shorter than this. is called wow. Trifles. And we have a promotion going on over there this year. If you listen to the latest episode, you can hear exactly what you need to do to qualify for that. And what that prize actually is so head on over to sherlockholmespodcast.com or simply search for sherlock holmes trifles in your podcast app well bert i'm afraid or maybe pleased <laughs> we've come to the end of another show we found the end how wonderful i know when snaking through just like the speckled band might through that ventilator And here we are once again. Well, I remain the well-ventilated Scott Monty.
1: And I'm just looking for a little dish of milk. I'm Burt Wolder. And together
0: we say... The Games
1: Afoot! <laughs> the, the games of foot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere.
0: Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to
1: Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.